This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. That is a, a view of the path, the view of the spiritual path that includes the shadow aspects of our being, the light aspects of our being, and how we can really have a comprehensive sense of the path to include, integrate, and heal the often fractious or the conflictual relationship between these two aspects of our being. So that's the broad theme. And then uh, as regular listeners will know, I my primary practices are yin yoga, um, my understanding of the energy body from Chinese medicine. I'm a licensed acupuncturist and I'm a long-term Dharma practitioner. And right now, uh, my partner Terry and I, we live in a very uh, sort of secluded patch of land in Maine. That's the northeast corner of the United States. And we run an online practice community, or a, what we call the Riverbird Sangha. A Sangha is a community of like-minded practitioners. And, and we uh, try to teach uh, a, an approach to this path. So today's episode that you're listening to is a Dharma talk from our Monday night series. And uh, the and the theme of this talk is to explore the teachings using an analogy that the Buddha gave. I mean, and he, as I say here, I'll actually read it to you. Uh, the Buddha's analogy that he gave for his awakening was that he discovered an ancient city. So he says, suppose monks, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and would see an ancient city an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past with parks, groves, ponds, and ramparts. A delightful place. Then he says, So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road traveled by the perfectly enlightened ones. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path. That is wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise stillness. So um, I try to contextualize uh, this, this little reflection that the Buddha gave. And, and, and one of the things I try to open up here uh, in the talk is how uh, really the Dharma itself is a collection of teachings or it's a collection of maps helping us understand the path. And as a as a body of teaching, or as a, a comprehensive map, of course, one of the questions that often comes up is how to interpret the map. And um, I try to share a little bit about my own challenges with map interpretation, uh, particularly in a story around working with my Burmese teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, and how at one point things got lost in translation for a while. And that's a common occurrence, I think. So that's the kind of the, a little bit of the overview. There's a lot in this talk, but at the end of the day, at the end of the talk, I, I, I just sort of try to close with the, the recognition and appreciation for being on the path with you, the listener um, or the practitioner, and how we're really walking the path together. That uh, I can't walk the path for you, you can't walk the path for me, but in walking it together, we can talk about what it's like to walk on this path, and we can all learn from each other. And that's really the spirit of the Sangha that Terry and I run. So the, if you'd like to join in the Riverbird Sangha, if you'd like to have uh, support in your own practice, 
ongoing support in the practice of yin yoga, qigong, or meditation, we invite you to practice with us. And um, you can do that by checking out the link in the show notes. It's, um, the link is joshsummers.net forward slash sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. And that will show you how you can participate in our online programming um, and receive access to our bank of uh, classes, tutorials, and workshops in the library. So uh, what I'm trying to signal with that is that no matter what your level of skill, whether you're a brand new beginner, whether you've been practicing for several years, or when you, whether you've been practicing for several decades, there's many members in the Sangha that have been practicing longer than me. And that's what I think makes the, uh, the culture of our conversation, the culture of our connection, very rich and deep. Um, but if you're new, don't be shy. Uh, we have lots of new people in our, in our community. And um, one of my aims is to, te- to present the teachings in a way that it's accessible to everyone and without diluting or um, I should say like, or even dumbing down the teaching. So I try to offer the, the, the essence of the teaching in a way that's accessible to as many as possible. That's at least my, my heart's intention. And um, it's an honor to be be, uh, to be practicing with you. So do consider joining or, or checking out the Sangha and consider practicing along with us. We look forward to practicing with you. And now, without further ado, I give you today's talk, An Ancient City. So, um, you know, after last week's session, um, some very important themes were being raised in the, the Q&A. And um, they were timely in the sense that I've been planning to return to some of these themes, particularly around the, the theme of racialization of consciousness um, and how, at least I see Dharma practice, Dharma practice the meditation journey, as being a a component, not the not the complete solution, but being a component in the transformation of that kind of a consciousness, um, and, and with a healing, or hopefully a healing um, energy to bring to to our society. And um, over the weekend, from Thursday through Sunday, I had a rare live in-person teaching engagement where I was teaching down in Boston, teaching a yin training. And prior to going to Boston, I, um, I really tried to get some ideas and thoughts together for a talk for today. And I did a pretty good job of that. I thought I had my, my outline ready. And um, while I was in Boston, I continued to think about my reflections and, and sort of sit with these themes in practice. And, um, and then this morning, just before I started my own meditation for the morning, um, I did something that I've been trying not to do, which is I went online before my meditation. And um, <clears throat> specifically, I went on to Twitter, which I've, I don't really have a big Twitter habit, but I do sort of check in with Twitter maybe once a day for 10, 15 minutes primarily to get a, 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 a probably an inaccurate, but a, a sense of the temperature. And um, I try to follow a fairly broad 
uh, group of people to follow. I don't even know what who they are necessarily personally, but um, it's sort of a, a it's a it's an adjunct source of news in a way. And I know there's a lot of problems with the news delivery on social media. But this particular morning, um, today, I the, the piece of news that caught my attention in my very fast uh, glance at Twitter was that a Colorado-based environmental activist named Wynne Allen Bruce had... Um, I don't know all the details either, but I guess he sat himself on the steps of the Supreme Court on Saturday and set himself on fire in an act of self-immolation. And he was evacuated to the hospital, but he did not survive his burns. And the little bit I learned on Twitter at the time was that this was a devoutly spiritual Buddhist practitioner in the Shambhala tradition. And um, that friends of his, what the little bit I could gather in the, head, in, the, in the article I saw, described him as a very loving, kind, compassionate person. That he wasn't suffering from mental illness. And immediately this evoked memories of uh, the Vietnamese monks that are, I remember hearing about who, in protest of the Vietnam War, had set themselves on fire. So I went into my meditation this morning on the heels of that bit of news. And... Um, and I'm just letting you know that I, I don't I don't have a lot of commentary. I'll have a, I'll, I'll share a little bit of a reflection from Thich Nhat Hanh around it shortly. But that that theme um, and what it what it might mean, what it what might compel someone to do that, uh, really gripped me and still grips me. And it sort of arrested me in a way. And when I went into the sitting, I that one that was one of the topics that kind of orbited around my mind or within my mind uh, with other topics that often are alive in my practice and particularly today was the on monday the question of what will i talk about tonight what will i speak about what will i try to reflect on and building from last week um as i listened back through the q a we had or the discussion really um one of the questions that I felt like I was hearing was kind of a question around how to engage with a teacher. And the specifics that was raised was like how to engage with um, a teacher that may be culturally conditioned very differently from your conditioning or from your experience. And the specifics were around, you know, a, a white teacher um, teaching in a predominantly white space and how that, and how I think the question is, how does that conditioning that I bring, my own conditioning, which I tried to speak to in a different way around my family conditioning, but how does my conditioning that I bring shape 
influence, uh, degrade potentially the, the, the essence of these teachings. And as I sat with that for my sitting, um, I started to think about what I've learned and what I've taken from the Buddha himself as a teacher and what I know, what I seem to know or think I know about his biographical life. And, and I've been thinking about this off and on for a while now. Um, but something recently, and I think in result of the, as a result of some of the questions that have been coming up, um, <clears throat> I've been thinking about his own life, the, the life of whether you want to call him Siddhartha or the honorific that he was given as the Buddha, the one who's awake. Um, I feel like there's some, like I described my dad, that there's ominous parallels between my conditioning and his. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think there's some ominous con parallels in the conditioning that I've had with Siddhartha's conditioning. And in that regard, I don't mean to say, and I, and I just want to say this from the beginning, and I hope it's clear from previous talks that I've been giving, that I am not in any way claiming to be enlightened. I'm not in any way claiming significant awakening. Um, as I've tried to sell, tell in the past few talks that I'm very aware of my human imperfections and foibles. But the parallel uh, that I, I feel that I connect with Siddhartha around is that he was born a prince. He was born to a, a royal family in Nepal, modern-day Nepal, in a town called Lumbini, and um, there's, there's lots of elements to his early life, but the essence was that he was, um, it was predicted that he would either become a great teacher or a great world leader. And his father, the king, wanted to ensure that he was the latter, that he was going to be a great leader and not a teacher, that he needed to basically continue with the family business. So in, in, the, in the popular version of this, he, the, the Siddhartha, the child, was put under house arrest and kept within the palace and, and essentially entertained with um, as many possible pleasures that could he, he could be entertained with to make his life in the palace satisfying. And um, I mentioned at some point that I've one of the periods of time that I was abroad, I lived in India, and I was working then for a, a school. I was, it was a, a small private school in western Gujarat, which is the west of India, in a very arid, dry um, part of the, the country. And I was working for a royal family that started the school. They had taken a, a, a portion of their palace <laughs> and turned it into a primary school for local children. And we're really engaged in some, from some very good service work. And I just mentioned that because it, the school itself and my living quarters, the, the room I had, and 
uh, where the family, the royal family that ran the school, their, their living quarters, was all in the, the, a courtyard, around a courtyard, in what was the former women's uh, living quarters of the palace. And I mention this because, I th you know, as I think about Gotama's life, or Siddhartha's life, as a, 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 a warrior, I mean, the, an Indian caste system, the warrior class is the ruling class. And the family, I, I, the, the royal family I lived with was of that same caste. And I really could, I got a, I mean, it was 1998 when I was there, but there was something about the palace and um, this is really, internet really hadn't taken off yet. If I wanted to make a phone call, I had to go to a, a specific uh, shop that did international phone calls. So there was no, there wasn't a ton of electricity we had. The, the power was going out several times a day. And I felt like in a way there was, I got a feel for that kind of a life. What it must be like to, for Siddhartha to be in that kind of uh, environment where uh, he was in some ways pampered. And even though I had that experience, the, the parallel is that in my own life, in my own upbringing, I'm very aware of some of the extreme forms of privilege that I have received. And I would say primarily that's educational. In, in, in the, the kinds of schools that I was fortunate enough to get into and, um, and to study within. And that includes sort of elite institutions and uh, uh, the secondary boarding school world and then an elite Ivy League institution in New York. And in spite of all of that privilege, I, during my year, time in college, I, I felt like I hit a crisis, a real crisis of meaning. I was seen in New York, I could, I was really like, like the, like Siddhartha himself, when he left the palace and, and confronted the existential truths of life, the hard tax of life, when he was no longer buffered by the, by the, the conditioning of the interior of the palace. Um, something in Siddhartha's heart started to wake up and realize that, like, if this is the world, if this is the real world, how am I going to, in a sense, live? How do I want to live this, my life? And so when I was in New York in college, I, um, I encountered and saw some of the very painful truths of our society in terms of segregation, uh, economic inequality, and how, to me, painfully unnecessary that seemed, and painfully unjust it seemed. And so facing that, I, at the time, I didn't really know what to do with myself. 
and I didn't I got involved in political activism but after a, a few years of being a a campus radical and um, engaged in all sorts of protests and sit-ins and parades and things like that I started to become wary of that form of activism personally because I found it was injected it had a lot of good perspective what I felt like was a, 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 the right way of seeing what was at play or what was at was such a problem in the world but there was an anger that I felt from my fellow activists and an anger that I knew in myself that was getting uh, kind of fed and fueled and that w that anger was getting directed to friends of mine family members and the sort of the class of people that I was holding responsible and 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 like the and like the buddha to be and siddhartha um facing these these really painful truths about inequity and existential issues of the fact that we'll all get old that we'll all get sick and that we'll all die I was kind of I real I was reeling my 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 personhood was just reeling with what do I do with my life that's of meaning and I was motivated to go east in the sense that I had studied by my last year I took some courses on um, Indian religion particularly early Vedic religion which I think I've shared with you a little bit about and how I virtually had a private tutorial for a semester because I was the last student to stay in the course after the ad drop period had ended because everybody else found the, the, the lecture too boring and <laughs> I was trapped but that made me I had to work my ass off to keep up in that class and do all the reading and that and, it, and I had a, it developed a wonderful relationship with that professor it was a real friendship um, and she kind of guided me uh, as I was leaving school she guided me to take another course on Hindu Hindu epics um, she guided me to go to India she found me that the, the job listing for the, the post of, of the job in India and later when I went to Burma to study Buddhism uh, she had been doing more of her own study in Calcutta she was a Sanskrit scholar and um, she flew over to, to Rangoon or Yangon and met me for a couple of weeks before my retreat so I had a very close relationship with her and I think where I'm going with this is that on one level um, yes I'm acknowledge I can acknowledge a tremendous amount of my conditioning and particularly the conditioning that I've received through what I could call elite privilege but when I got to Burma and when I you know, this is 
just his, chronologically, this is after graduate school now. So after I finished my acupuncture degree, um, I knew that I had this very short window of time before I would need to get working and I would, my student loan would, payments would kick in. And um, at the time, an, another friend of mine said, you know, during this little window, you should really go. You should seize that moment and go practice deep in, um, in Burma because there's this teacher there that uh, is one of the, as, as she put it, there's this teacher that's one of the, the, the last great masters. And his name is Sayada Upandita. We've, some of you heard me talk about him. And he's a Burmese monk, and he was in the tradition of, of Mahasi Sayada. And I didn't really know much about this tradition at the time. I just knew that this was um, sort of the deep end, and this was the source. Most of my Western teachers had studied with, with Upandita. Sayada was the, you know, just means teacher. U is an honorific, like Mr. or Sir, and Pandita was his uh, monastic name. And earlier this year, I, I talked to you a little bit about a, a jazz musician from South Africa that I've had a few contacts, points of contact with, named Abdullah Ibrahim. And uh, right before I went to Burma, I went to hear Abdullah Ibrahim in Cambridge, and um, one of the things I shared with him at, when I ran into him backstage was that um, I was sharing how excited I was to, to go to Burma and, and practice deeply. And his advice, his closing words, to, parting words with me were to, to, to dig deeply. And, and that was a reference to his earlier statement that when, we, that when we dig deeply enough, we come to realize that we're drinking from the same source, the drinking from the, the same water from the same source. So I was, when I went to Burma for, for this two month special retreat, I, um, I had tremendous zeal and, and I, I realized that this was a very rare moment and probably the, the only window in my life where I would have, the conditions would come together such that I would be able to devote this much time to a consistent um, retreat type of practice. In that I knew that once I got my, my acupuncture life started, that <clears throat> I wouldn't be able to like, having a, having a client load of, ac of, cli of acupuncture patients is more like having a family. You just can't leave them. You can't get up and go. You're, you're beholden to your, 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 your clients. So I knew that once I got my practice going, I wouldn't be able to take this time off again. Um, and when I arrived in Burma, um, there were some Western students that had been going regularly. They'd been going every, every few years. And one of them took me aside and, and, and politely just said, it's great that you're here, but you know, most people have been coming regularly. You're, you're, you're one of the newer people. You're likely not going to have a great teacher here. They said, you're probably going to be uh, scheduled to, to study directly under one of the junior monks. And I thought, oh, well, I, th I was hoping I'd study with Sayadaw Upandita, but uh, some junior monks, that sounds fine. I, it, I wanted the experience. I wanted the authentic experience. And once the retreat started, um, and the way, the way it works is every other day, you go have a private interview with the teacher and talk about what you're seeing and noticing in your meditation. 
and um, the day that the interview schedules were getting posted, I went to look at these, the lists of uh, the teachers' names and then the, the students with the times, time frame when the students should go see that teacher. And there were four main monks that were giving interviews and they had long lists under their names and I couldn't find my name anywhere. It was very confusing to me. To the point that I had to go break my silence and speak to the head monk that was sort of managing the Dharma Hall. And I said, uh, I don't think I got scheduled for an interview. Would you mind checking uh, with management to see if they misplaced my name or misplaced my application? And he said, what's your name? And I said, Josh Summers. And he, he sort of squinted and looked at the, at the board that had all the, the interview schedules on it. And um, then he pointed to something, he says, Sumera, is that you? Josh Sumera. And I said, uh, the first name's my name and it's sort of my last name. Maybe there was a misspelling. He said, no, this must be you. He said, this must be you. You're going to uh, interview with Saida Upandita. And I said, oh, that's a surprise. I thought I would, you know, being a, fir- a newbie here, I thought I would uh, be kind of at the low end of the totem pole of the pecking order. And I thought this was a great thing. I was like, I was really excited. And um, as I was reflecting about this today in my sitting, um, part of the excitement was that I had read so many accounts of students, whether they're Asian students or Western students going to study in monastery type settings, and how there's this kind of archetypical experience where at the interview, in the, in the exchange with the teacher, where you, where you go meet with the teacher, whether it's daily or every other day, You line up outside the teacher's room, you wait patiently, you hear a little bell ring, you you, um, kind of almost obsequiously or uh, very, very, very respectfully walk in and bow down and you're sort of at the teacher's feet. And, and, And then you talk about, you describe what your experience in the meditation is like and then hopefully the teacher gives you some pearls of wisdom or support or guidance. And um, as I've shared in the past, um, these interviews in the beginning were were quite confusing to me um, in that, like I said, I had a ton of zeal and I was, I was trying my best to be a model meditator and to do everything right. And as I look back through the, the journal I kept during that time today, um, after these interviews, at one point, Sayadaw Upandita said to me, he said, kind of speaking to the translator, but really jab, making a jab at me, he said, it's, it's, a, it's frustrating when you spend so much time with beginners and they don't make any progress. <laughs> um, and that's how it was going, that he was basically saying, I wasn't making any progress. A couple of weeks later, he gave a Dharma talk where he uh, implied that if yogis weren't making progress, they would be asked to leave the center in two days' time. And I thought I was going to get evicted from the center. And I was really struggling because this is about two weeks into the two-month retreat, and I was in my sitting, I could see that the, the, the pain in my body had largely subsided the excruciating pain that I was started out with and the 
the the gnawing irritation in my mind or heart that was struggling and fighting with the mosquitoes, the the, the food I didn't like, <clears throat> the lack of sleep, and just the hard hard tax of the conditions. That was all starting to smooth out, and my my mind was getting pliable and um, smooth and more peaceful and equanimous and clear. And it was I was getting a lot of confidence in the power of this methodology, the power of this path. But when I'd go try to describe this to Upandita, you know, he would just kept like he seemed like he was going cross-eyed with frustration in, in terms of my ability to communicate what I was experiencing in a way that he wanted me to. There was, so there was this sort of lost in translation experience that I had, and I, I, I mentioned this in, in the journal. Um, and, th- and this isn't uncommon for there to be translation issues, and, that's, and this is sort of why I'm bringing it up. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that point of translation in a second. But I had remembered that from a Western teacher of mine, a story about an encounter between a Tibetan master and a Korean master. And the Tibetan master's name was Kalu Rinpoche, and the Korean master was named Sang Sun, Master Sang Sun. And they got together on stage. It was sort of this great meeting of Buddhist minds. And what would the what would the the, the interfaith or the interchange between these minds be like? And um, at the beginning of their discussion, the, the, the Korean Zen master, Sang Sun, held up an orange and said, What is it? What is it? Now, in this tradition, in this Korean tradition, that's the central question of the practice, to question everything. What is it? And to ultimately, through an exhaustive questioning of what it is, what is this thing really? Uh, the mind is, in effect... Um, Somebody's tricked to come into its its agnosticism about what things are. That the, so the, in the Korean tradition that that Sang Sun led, the kind of mantra was "Don't know, don't know mind." And so he was sort of using that teaching with his encounter with Kala Rinpoche, the great Tibetan. Sort of, it wasn't necessarily testing Kala, but he said, "You know, what is it?" And Kala would ask the translators, like, what's he asking? He's asking about what this orange is? Finally, after a few back and forth, Kahlo said, don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> and, of course, and so they were just missing each other in terms of what they meant. They're both from Buddhist traditions, one from Korea, one from Tibet. But there was stylistic cultural differences in how they connected with the practice that kind of let, uh, caused them to not connect with each other directly. And when I was sitting there with Upandita in Burma, I felt that there was something similar going on. I knew that I must not be communicating to his satisfaction what he wants to hear. And there was a kind of a, a progression I noticed in my journals where I was, one of the things we had to do regularly was do, uh, we'd sit for an hour and then we'd do a walking meditation where we walk slowly back and forth for an hour. And when you go into the teacher, you have to just describe what are you seeing when you sit, what are you seeing when you walk. And primarily in the walking practice, the teachers wanted us to describe in very precise detail the sensations that occur when the foot is slowly lifted, 
when the foot is slowly pushed forward in the air and when the foot slowly comes down. And we were walking barefoot on, on kind of wooden parquet floor in the Dharma Hall. And, you know, I remembered that there was a sense of coolness on the, on my, on the sole of my foot and then that coolness would kind of uh, almost disappear as I lifted my foot up and there would be the soft breeze against my foot, the skin of my foot as I'd move the foot forward. And then um, at one point, I think I described it like the, my foot coming down felt like a, a rain cloud bursting on dry, arid land. This is like this metaphorical, like, poet, poetic description I had. And I, when I, I thought it was great because I thought it was like I was th- two, 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 three weeks in. I thought this is, must be what Saito was looking for. He's, he must be like the Zen master who, who wants me to try to convey this in a way that's maybe not so rational, but just gets to the essence of it. So I was trying to speak to the essence. And every time I spoke, try to speak to the essence, the bell would ring and he'd say, please try harder, uh, please try harder. Finally, I cracked it though. I realized that all my poetics had no, like, he was just completely disinterested in it. All he wanted to know was the basic bare sensations that I was noticing. So I, I started just saying, when I lift my foot, I noticed a decrease in pressure when I placed my foot, I noticed an increase in pressure. When I was able to communicate like that, he said, oh, now you're making good progress. And once we cleared up our sort of lost in translation confusion, things started to go much smoother for me. And at the end of the retreat, um, so this was in 2005, at the end of January, January 2005, towards the end of this retreat, um, I was leaving my, we, we all had little mini cabins that we stayed in. They're called kutis, spread out through the forest. And we'd wake up in the morning to a sound of a, a, a gong and find our way into the meditation hall with flashlights by 3.30 in the morning or four o'clock in the morning. But before an evening sitting, I was leaving my kuti one, towards the end of the retreat. And as I opened up the door, there was a, the, the managerial monk, the, the old monk that, that managed the retreat was at the base of my steps. And he said, um, Saidao, meaning Saidao Upandita, asked me to tell you that you need to give a talk at the closing ceremony. And I, I, I almost looked over my shoulder. I said, no, 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 this, this can't be, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> you got the wrong guy. Like I know I have no right and no business giving a talk at this center with monks from all over. And he said, no, your name is, you know, Sumara. <laughs> wasn't Summers, it was Sumara. Uh, Upandita asked that you give this talk. And I said, well, can you give me a sense of how long? He said, five, ten minutes, five, ten minutes. Okay, okay, I I can do this. And so the night before the the last day of the retreat, where I had to give this talk, I I basically didn't sleep. I was just up all night trying to gather my thoughts and figure out what I would say. 
and the um, so I, I mentioned I found all my notebooks and journals from the last twenty years or so, and and digging around today, I found the the talk. I found the short talk. So I wanted to share this with you um, because again, I I I was incredibly honored obviously to ask. It was an honor to be there and practicing with, with these teachers and, and fellow yogis. So the talk is just a short talk. It won't take too long. But I said, Venerable Sayadawji. So that's the teacher, Upandita. And Venerable Sayadaw is all the other teachers that were there, the monks and nuns and fellow yogis. I said, in reflecting upon the last 60 days, I am struck by the overwhelming number of opportune conditions that have converged to support our being here today and to being together. As individuals, the conditions have ripened such that we all have attained this precious human life. And in this life, and I'm going to come back to this statement shortly, so don't... This, 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 this is a trigger warning. This line might sound like, a, like it doesn't make any sense. But I said, and in this life, the conditions have been such that each of us here has received a special gift. And that gift is the gift of true suffering. And within that suffering, within the pain of that suffering, parenthetically, which is unique to all of us, it's going to be, there's no uniformity of what suffering looks like. But within that suffering, we have begun a search for a freedom from all suffering. And I said, that search has brought us here to Pandita Rama, Shemungon in Myanmar, to this extraordinary center, itself the result of many, many perfectly ripened conditions, from the exceptional generosity of the cooks, the servers, the groundskeepers, the office staff, the medics, to the tremendous generosity of all the donors, the locals that donated food, supplies to the center, to the radical generosity and compassion of the teachers. And I said, all of these conditions, all of these conditions have come together such that one goal, one goal may be achieved. That is that each of us individually may walk on a path that is as clean and as clear and as well lit as possible, leading straight to Nibbana. And Nibbana is the Pali word for the Sanskrit term Nirvana or awakening. So all of these conditions have filled me with an enormous sense of gratitude. And the question, the question of how I might adequately honor all of that is alive for me. How might my life, how might I honor all of that that has been given? 
And in my final interview with Sayadaw Upandita, he wanted to know what my opinion of the Buddha was after 60 days of practice. So what do you think of the Buddha now? <laughs> and I was at a loss when, when he asked me that question. Having practiced the Buddha's path for 60 days continuously, I didn't know how I could express the respect and gratitude that I had for the being who discovered this path. Moreover, how can one adequately articulate one's reverence and respect for the teachers who hold the torches all along that path? The answer may lie, as I said here, the answer may lie in Sayadawji's final words of advice to me. And they were simple and direct. Two words. Keep walking. So by continuing to walk with sincere, respectful steps, we honor all of the conditions that have converged to support our journey. We make sure not to waste a single drop of these vital teachings. And we move ourselves that much closer to the attainment of Nibbana. I close, I just said, may we all keep walking and may we all be free. So the, I use the word Nibbana quite regularly because that's how, that's how the teaching was framed at the center. It was a, described as a Nibbana factory. And in, that, in the talk there, I, I mentioned that the, the statement I said might be triggering is the idea of suffering as a special gift. And I don't mean that in a glib, celebratory way, like, oh, isn't it great that people suffer? That's not what I mean. It's a, it's a, it's a sentiment that I remember hearing from another teacher that said something to the extent that it's the, it's the awakening to the fact of this condition in life, the pain of suffering, that when it's great enough and where no other outlet, no other thing can blunt the pain, we start to look for a real way out. And that's what brings many to the Dharma. That's what brings many to the path. And as I was in my meditation, as I was thinking about what a path is, um, and this is how I'll close, I think, um, I remembered a, a famous sort of phrase or teaching that the Buddha gave where he just simply said, quote, suppose monks, friends, practitioners, suppose a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. He would follow it 
and would see an ancient city and an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past with parks, groves, ponds, and rampants, ramparts. A delightful place. So he's describing finding an ancient path in the forest that when he followed it led to an ancient city. The ancient city, as he explains, is the experience of awakening. He said, so too, monks, I saw the ancient path. I saw this ancient path. The ancient road traveled by the perfectly enlightened ones of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path. That is a path of wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise energy, wise meditation or mindfulness, and wise concentration or stillness, samadhi. And as I reflected on that, you know, he's saying he didn't invent this. He didn't build it himself. This is something he, that the Buddha discovered in his own life and that countless beings have preserved for centuries such that all of us can walk that path. And if I think about it, you know, one way of framing it is that the teacher doesn't walk the path for us. And I would say, too, that the teacher can't make us walk the path. And to some of the language that came up last week and came through a few of the emails, I would say, I'm not, I'm not here as a, as a friend on the path to tell you what to do. That would be an authoritarian model of teaching. I consider myself a path walker with you, someone who's been in, very engaged and interested in this path for a number of years, just as many of you have. And together, through our conversation, our practice, our sharing, we flesh out our understanding of our path together. And I didn't realize that this at the time when I was in Burma, but many years later, a, a book about the history of meditation in Burma came out. And what I didn't realize then, when I was there, was that for a long time, after the time of the Buddha, most monastics didn't actually meditate. They kind of learned texts and remembered the suttas and preserved the teachings and got learned the philosophy, but they didn't, most monastics in Asia didn't really practice meditation. But it was in the late 19th century when British colonialism moved into Burma and removed the Burmese king, who was kind of like the Buddhist pope for Burma at the time, it was 
in response to that colonial invasion that certain monks in Burma started to change things. And they started to teach not just monks and nuns how to meditate more, but they opened up to lay practitioners, like commoners, people, non-monastics to practice. And there was a revival in response to British colonialism to preserve the Dharma, to prevent the Dharma from going extinct through the activism of individual practitioners. And they, the two big monks in the, the turn of the century, turn of the, of the end of the 19th, early 20th century, were Mahasi Sayadaw, that's Sayadaw Upandita's teacher, and another man named Uba Kin. But they created these huge centers. Right? I think I've shared in the past where there'd be open-air pavilions. Each pavilion, there might be, say, 20 pavilions at a center, and each pavilion could hold 100 to 200 yogis meditating. <laughs> so back in the day, there was just, these were hives of practice and of people experiencing deep levels of realization. And when I learned about that history, um, the way I connected with it was that I felt that m m the fortune that I had to meet and worked with Upandita was very much in the spirit of that preservation. And that I think everyone that has worked with him and other teachers um, from these uh, kind of, say, source cultures that have been cultures that preserve the Buddhist teachings through these centuries, um, that we all feel um, a reverential care for the preservation of these teachings and the accessibility of these teachings. Which br brings the question up, which we'll come to later, um, and I realize I'm over time, the question of, uh, of styles of communication, how uh, a new teacher's cultural conditioning might affect the teaching. But I just want to maybe end on this note that I encourage everyone to you know, not take anything that I say as the way it is, not take anything that I'm saying as truth or something that you need to believe, but in the spirit of the Dharma, to listen and to take and make your own whatever is useful. And to leave and put aside, or maybe just leave for another time, anything that doesn't feel useful or supportive. Um, and in that spirit, I'll just say, may we continue to walk the path together. Okay, as always, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. I hope some of the reflections and stories I share uh, stimulate uh, some exploration for you in your own practice and your own relationship to the practice. And uh, hopefully that's part of a virtuous growth, uh, you know, the development of insight and wisdom and compassion for you, both towards yourself and for all others in your life. And in recognition of that, just 
continuing to know that we are two months deep, more than two months deep into a really an apocalyptic scenario of war in Europe and uh, specifically in the Ukraine, obviously, and just the, 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 the ratcheting of anxiety, fear, despair, confusion that is shocking, like really in waves shocking through the world. Um, I just want to add my voice to the, the chorus of uh, people calling for peace, for understanding, for compassion. And I know that your practice, my practice, our practice together is a, a, a very valuable and vital condition right now. So thank you for your practice. Keep practicing. Stay safe. Stay strong. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.